It's Saturday afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Sue Jeffers Show. No, I am not the boy named Sue. My name is Howard Root, or if you're not a Minnesotan, you can say Root, Root or Root, I don't care, either way works. And I am your guest host today, filling in for Sue. Uh, Sue is off today on a well-deserved day of rest after doing the last two weeks live from the Minnesota State Fair. That's enough to tire out everyone, or anyone, Even someone with Sue's boundless energy is bound to be tired after doing two Saturdays in a row at the State Fair. So Sue asked me to guest host today, and since I have only done this guest hosting talk radio thing once before, she wisely left me her professional producer, that's superstar Stan Poggle, who's going to help guide me through these next two hours. Stan, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, but I I have this list, this itinerary of how the show is going to go today. I'm really not used to that, Howard. Yeah, well, we're you know when you're a rookie or a near rookie, a sophomore like me, you got to plan out your action, or it could all fall apart pretty darn quickly. And dead radio time is probably not the right idea here, right, Stan? That is correct. But I'm sure you'll do fine as you did last time. So good. Well, we're starting off. We we have uh, Steely Dan all day in the bumper music. Stan has uh, has gone through the archives and pulled out all the Steely Dan songs that I requested. Uh, as probably you all know, Walter Becker passed away this last week. Walter was one of the two in the Steely Dan duo with Donald Fagan. And I was a guy growing up in the late 70s, and uh, while a lot of my classmates were listening to Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin, I was uh, I was more of a Steely Dan fan, and I just love that jazz rock and roll fusion. I don't understand if that was uh, one of yours, too, or not It was yourself. a little bit before my time, but I do enjoy the music. Yeah. So I think we'll do Steely Dan all the way through, starting with Reeling in the Years, which you heard at the opening, and I'll I'll let a little bit more play every time as I get excited about listening to my old uh, music from my growing up days. So in between the Steely Dan bumper music, today's show is going to be all about politics, jam-packed two hours of politics. In fact, you know, I already had a full docket uh, for today. And then yesterday afternoon, the Minnesota Supreme Court dropped a judicial bomb, if you will. They uh, they issued their first ruling in what's going to be a number of rulings in that long-running dispute between Governor Mark Dayton and the Minnesota legislature. That all started when, at the end of the session, Governor Dayton decided he wanted to defund the legislature with a line-item veto after the legislature had already uh, adjourned for the session, so there was no way to override that veto. And Dayton said he was only going to allow the legislature to come back in and restore funding if they would agree to about three or four different legislative changes that Governor Dayton wanted. So the Supreme Court had heard oral arguments on this about two weeks ago. I actually was in the back of the courtroom listening into that. Uh, that oral argument. And then yesterday afternoon, they gave their first ruling, which as I looked at it, I read the ruling and then I read our local papers, both the Star Tribune and the Pioneer Press. And, uh, no surprise to anyone out there, probably in conservative, uh, talk listening, uh, radio, um, land. Both of our local papers got the story completely wrong. They uh, they said that Governor Dayton had won and that his line-item veto had been upheld as constitutional, and now there was just going to be mediation between the legislature and the governor to decide what the next court action or next action was going to be. Uh, in actuality, uh, and I'll get into it a little bit later in the show, uh, maybe I'll talk about it with, one of our, with our first guest, uh, that's not what the court decision says and uh, Dayton's uh, win in this case is anything but certain I would I would consider it even less likely than before that judicial decision came down 
So we'll get into that a little bit as I can squeeze it in. But let me give you the game plan for today's show. Uh, going from the end of the show to the beginning, let me give you the 4.30 slot. Uh, I'm going to have uh, at 4.30, we're going we're gonna to have Miller time. Uh, it's only appropriate that you close the show with uh, something that, uh, that gives you a little beer buzz. Uh, Miller time, Representative Tim Miller is going to be calling into the show. And uh, Tim is running for Congress in Minnesota's 7th District against Colin Peterson. I actually started to uh, get interested in the 7th District and get to know Tim a little bit a couple months ago. Uh, and the reason why this is an interesting district to me is it's really unusual. Uh, it's kind of Minnesotan in its own unusual way. The uh, 7th District is western Minnesota. It's been held by Colin Peterson for 28 years when this current term is up. So you'd think that's a solid Democrat district, but in actuality, it's, it's exactly the opposite. The 7th District is plus 12 on the Republican population side of things, and Trump won that district by 30%, and Colin Peterson, in his 14th election, won it only by 5% over a Republican candidate who raised less than $30,000 for his entire campaign. Now, the unusual thing about that is how a lot of Minnesota Republicans think that the 7th District is not winnable for the Republicans in 2018. And as a former business guy who looks at problems from a numbers perspective, I took a look at that and said, that just cannot be a plus 12 Republican district with a congressman in his 70s running for his 15th term is beatable if we get the right candidate. And so that's why I've invited Tim to call in today to go over what he's doing to replace Colin Peterson and how he's going to run a campaign that's different than before and one that can get those Republicans to vote Republican in November of next year. But before that, in the 4 o'clock slot, I've got something that I think everyone will be really interested in. This is something you probably haven't heard about, at least I haven't. I don't have any college-age children. Uh, and even if you do, they may not be, might not be talking to you about what's going on on our college campuses. I have a guest calling in. His name's Ryan. I'm not going to give you his last name or the college he attends, but Ryan is a senior at a liberal arts college in the Midwest in this area. Uh, he's also the president of the college Republican group in that college. I think there's about 12 of them in that college. So it's a, a real small minority in this college that are in the college Republicans. Um, but I know Ryan's parents a little bit. I was talking to them a week or so ago and uh, heard some of the stories of what Ryan's reporting of going on in the colleges today and on the college campuses and how college Republicans are treated by their professors, by the administration, uh, by the fellow students, and what the reaction is when a college Republican group gets together and how he can exist in college today. So that'll be the four o'clock slot. Ryan will call in, and uh, I, I've only talked to Ryan once or twice and not about this subject, so we're going live and unscripted, and we're going to learn what's going on on colleges and liberal arts colleges today. But even before that, in the 3.30 time slot, I've got Scott Johnson of the famous Powerline Group calling in. And Scott is a lawyer, lawyer extraordinaire. Uh, as much as I think I know something about the law, being a former lawyer myself, uh, Scott puts me to shame. When he writes in the Powerline uh, every day, or sometimes two, three posts every day on Minnesota issues, on national issues, he is always spot on. He's always uh, deep in his thoughts, and he's almost always witty in his comments. And he's been particularly on all three points uh, dealing with the Senator Al Franken and Senator Amy Klobuchar 
blue strip, blue shit, blue, blue slip treatment. I can't say that one too, uh, unfortunately, or Stan's going to beat me today. Uh, but the blue slip treatment that uh, is given to Justice David Strauss as he was been nominated to be on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. So Scott's going to call in at 3.30 and we're going to cover that as well. I think with Scott, I might get into a little bit on the Minnesota Supreme Court decision yesterday and how the newspapers got it so wrong and what's likely to happen going forward in the battle between Governor Mark Dayton and the legislature. But first, uh, in this first segment, I just want to talk a little bit and get started here, and then we'll go to a break and come back and talk a little bit more deep in depth about my really my favorite political subject of the day, and that is identity politics. And let me just set the stage with defining what I think identity politics is, and then we'll get into some of the current issues and the repercussions of identity politics in Minnesota and in the nation. So when we talk identity politics, I think we all understand that we're judged by who we are rather than what we think and what we say. So when um, some splinter groups come up with their own mottos based solely on their identity, whether it's racial, whether it's sexual, whether it's sexual orientation. I mean, you can splinter the identities down to nanoparticles where there's only one person in each group, but they identify as that group, and that group is the most important thing in their entire life. And the identity politics, which we've all seen happen in the United States over the last couple of years, is something that's pulled people apart not ra- rather than bring people together. And what the Democrat Party in particular has tried to do with identity politics is rally their base against really what's the majority of America still and try to win elections while doing that. Now, there is a uh, a noted liberal academic scholar named Mark Lilla who's done an article on identity politics from a liberal perspective. Because as a conservative, me talking about the Democrats' identity politics problem is not going to be interesting. They're not going to listen to me. They're going to dismiss me out of hand. But when a, cons- when a liberal talks about identity politics and the dangers it imposes on the Democratic, Democratic Party, that is interesting. And the reaction to that is telling in how the Democrats react to the identity politics problem that they have and the effect of that problem on their inability to win elections in America today. So we'll get into that Mark Lilla commentary and what that means after we get back from the break. This is Newstalk.com, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130. Welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. Good Saturday afternoon, everyone. This is Howard Rook, guest hosting for the Sue Jeffers Show. Little Steely Dan playing in the background. Uh, R.I.P. Walter Becker. They just passed away this last week. And, and hopefully as we're looking at Hurricane Irma coming dead aim on the uh, western side of Florida, hopefully uh, the, the hurricane takes a little bit of a left turn and, and doesn't do the damage that we expect. We're keeping an eye on that here today. So welcome back uh, to the Sue Jeffers Show. Uh, Howard Root here on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, com, talking identity politics in this first segment and what the implications are for America in terms of politics and elections. And I want to dive into it from a different angle because a conservative talking about identity politics can kind of be 
preaching to the choir a bit. I, I like to look at it from a liberal preaching about identity politics and the dangers of identity politics taking over a political culture and a political campaign. And that's Mark Lilla, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times last November. Now, Mr. Lilla, Professor Lilla, is a professor of humanities at Columbia, writing an op-ed in the New York Times. You can't get any more liberal establishment than that. And uh, Mark Lilla is a long-term humanities professor. He goes back to the 60s, and he's been a liberal his entire life. This is from the belly of the beast talking about liberal identity politics and the impacts it has on Democrat elections going forward. So I want to go through a couple of excerpts of this. I don't want to read this on on the radio to you. That would be too boring. But get you the point of what Mark Lilla's point, uh, point is regarding identity politics in the Democratic Party. He starts off his op-ed by saying, it is a truism that America has become a more diverse country. Now, I think everyone would agree with that. That's, there's no dispute there. He continues, though, but how should this diversity shape our politics? And that's the nub, as we have a melting pot of people, some people would say, or diverse groups of people living together, as others would say. How does that diversity shape our politics? His point, his first point, is when he says, One of the many lessons of the recent presidential election campaign and its repugnant outcome, that being President Trump, is that the age of identity liberalism must be brought to an end. Well, now, here's a liberal college professor saying that we have to get past the idea of every issue being decided based on who you are rather than your point and the merits of your point. He continues with a pretty long quote, which really lays out the essence of his arguments. He says, The fixation on diversity in our schools and in the press has produced a generation of liberals and progressives narcissistically unaware of conditions outside their self-defined groups and indifferent to the task of reaching out to Americans in every walk of life. Now, when I read that, I thought, "I've, I've seen that. I've seen that exact thing. I've seen liberals and progressives so wrapped up in themselves that they cannot see what's going on in rural America in poor America, in any aspect of America other than their own. Mark Lilla continues, By the time they reach college, many assume that diversity discourse exhausts political discourse and have shockingly little to say about such perennial questions as class war, the economy, and the common good. In large part, this is because of high school history curriculums. Well, shots fired. Uh, Mark Lilla is pointing the finger right back at our high school curriculum and the teachings of identity politics, which then makes these people uncurious as to what's going on in the world. But then he takes that and goes to the next level of what that means in electoral politics, and he says this, But it is at the level of electoral politics that identity liberalism has failed most spectacularly, as we have just seen. Identity politics is largely expressive, not persuasive, which is why it never wins elections, but can lose them. So this is November of 2016, right after the presidential election, and Mark Lilla, a professor of humanities at Columbia, is saying that identity politics cost the Democrats the election. And what he wants instead, at the end of his article, he argues that liberalism should concentrate on widening its base by appealing to Americans as Americans and emphasizing the issues that affect a vast majority of them. It would speak to the nation as a nation of citizens who are in this together and must help one another. 
Well, I think that's all good advice. And I was worried that maybe liberals would actually take that to heart. They'd change the party and they'd start winning elections. But have no fear. Identity politics is the culture of the Democrat Party. This is this argument of Mark Lillo's has festered in the Democratic Party over the last seven to eight months. And finally, in the New York Times, just a couple weeks ago, there was an op-ed against Mark Lilla's uh, article, against the new book that he's uh, publishing called The Once and Future Liberal. And it's a scathing attack on him on not just his policies, but also who he is. They say, this is the New York Times book review, rather than engage in good faith with movements like Black Lives Matter, Lilla chooses to mock them reserving a particularly mean-spirited sneer for today's campus left. They go on to attack Mark Lilla as not being open to the ideas of the identity politics people that Mark Lilla is criticizing, making it a complete circle as to why the Democrats will never realize that this is a problem. So you see, in the identity politics sphere, who you are matters more than what you believe, and what you believe has to be congruent with who you are and where you grew up. That issue is going to be a predominant issue in 2018, I believe. It's actually an issue as we get into the the uh, uh, the setting of candidates here in, in the local offices, in the Minneapolis uh, mayor's race, in the Minnesota governor's race, and we will see that. Identity politics is here to stay in the Democrat Party, and I think we can all be glad for that on the Republican side. I do want to point out one final thing on this identity politics, and we could talk all two hours about it, is how it impacts people's view of where they can go in society. Because Paul Ryan, our Speaker of the House, tweeted out this last week saying, In our country, the condition of your birth does not determine the outcome of your life. This is what makes America so grand. And that's the American ideal, that you can start from nothing and grow to great wealth and happiness. And it's based on the talents and the fruits of your labor, not born, not based on where you were born. Now, if you're born with a rich parents, with rich parents, you certainly can achieve more than if you're born into a poverty situation. But it's not limiting in the sense that you cannot move yourself up in the social strata based on where you were born. Now, the tweets that came back at Paul Ryan from that original tweet were the typical Democrat experience. Uh, One person said, I had a similar experience, came out of college libertarian, lived out in the real world, and experienced how little you can do on your own. That was a guy who was the editor of the Orlando Magic Daily newspaper. Kind of ties in together there. Greatest country in the world is still a platitude, another guy said. A small voice of the resistance fighting against the dark forces of hate. And then our own local TV news reporter, Jana Shortle, tweeted this. That's a pure white privilege narrative. You were born way ahead of a lot of folks. Me too. Know your privilege and level the field. So that's a news reporter in the Twin Cities talking about the idea that in America you can grow beyond where you were born and achieve great things, saying that is a white privilege narrative, and the answer is to level the field. Spoken to Paul Ryan, a guy who lost his father when he was very young and overcame that to become Speaker of the House, as was pointed out by Peter Glessing, a local guy, in response to Janice Shortle's tweet. So you look at all of what's going on with identity politics from the local, national, uh, to the individual basis, 
And we see a Democrat party that continues to focus on the individual and on the limitations. And hopefully the Republican Party continues to focus on the expansive and the majority in this country. So with that, we'll, we'll go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to have Scott Johnson call in, and Scott is going to talk uh, for the next uh, half hour with me about the, the issues with Justice David Strauss and his appointment, nomination to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and the blue slip treatment that Senator Amy, Amy Klobuchar and Senator Al Franken gave to Justice Strauss. Stay tuned. This is Howard Root, Jeffers Show on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, and TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Welcome back to the Sue Jeffers Show. This is Howard Root, guest hosting for Sue today on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. A little more Steely Dan music here as we get into the next segment. And uh, for the next segment, I want to jump into the the entire issue with Justice David Strauss' nomination to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, for that, I want to call on Scott Johnson, who's uh, uh, the one of the conservative Illuminatis of, uh, of of the Twin Cities, with the Powerline crew of John Hinderocker and and Scott here in the Twin Cities. We've got conservative writers better than any in the country. And Scott has been following this Justice David Strauss nomination and blue slip fiasco uh, continuously since it, it started about four months ago. Scott, are you welcome to the K-Talk Sue Jeffers show? Well, thanks for having me on, Howard. Great. So for our listeners, Scott, maybe you can kind of set the stage a bit as to what the blue slip process is and, and how this came to be such a... Uh, kind of a, a two-senator or even a one-senator veto of any judge nominated to the federal bench. You know, I've been trying to learn more about it in the context of this particular issue regarding Justice Strauss, who is, who is serving currently on the Minnesota Supreme Court and has been appointed by President Trump, Trump to serve on a vacancy for the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Um, the blue slip thing really kind of, it, 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 I'd say two things about it. One, the uh, the power that it represents has varied depending on its treatment by the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who for the past several years has been Senator Grassley. And with the Republicans in control of the Senate, Senator Grassley has accorded the home state senators uh, the power to block consideration of uh, judges nominated by the president, if they if the home state senators fail to return the blue slips, home state being the states in which a district court judge from that state is appointed, federal district court judge is appointed, or a judge in this case uh, whose home state is Minnesota, or a federal court of appeals that represents seven states. Yeah, so this Minnesota. is this is one of the so interesting in case, parts of this is that you know Justice Strauss is being nominated for uh, Eighth Circuit, which includes Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, the Dakotas, but they're only asking the Minnesota senators to view Justice Strauss's nomination with a blue slip. Is that the way it's always been in the judiciary? I mean, why why would Minnesota get a block of a uh, one judge to the um, Eighth Circuit? Do you? Howard, uh, I, I'm calling you on a phone that's giving me a hard time. I wonder if I can call you back on my cell phone. <laughs> sure, sure. With technical difficulties for the uh, the rookie here, uh, we'll have Scott call back in, and 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 I'll jump in and kind of give a little bit of it. I know Scott will do a much better job when he joins back in. But if we 
look at the the blue slip process uh, has been around for a long time in the Senate. And, you know, this is one of those Senate rules that comes out of nowhere. There's no law for this. There's no statute for it. There's no court order for it. But what instead we have is a Senate process in the smoke-filled chambers of, of the Senate deciding how judges will get nominated. And so in this case, uh, uh, President Trump has the right to place a name and nomination for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers the, generally the upper Midwest. And with that upper Midwest area, uh, the the blue slip is given to the senators from the state where that judge resides. Now, even though the judge is going to be representing all eight states of the Eighth Circuit, the only senators that get a say on that nomination are the two senators from the state where the judge resides. In this case, Judge David's, Justice David Strauss is a Minnesota Supreme Court justice. He uh, used to teach at the University of Minnesota. He's a well-respected jurist. He's been uh, endorsed by everyone from uh, Alan Page to Michael Cerisi to uh, Sam Kaplan. Uh, none of those you would call to be conservative, diehard Republicans in any way, shape, or form. But the blue slip is given by the by the, the administration to Senator Klobuchar and Senator Franken to determine whether they are going to allow the nomination of Justice Strauss to go through. And maybe Scott, I think we have Scott back on here. Scott, are you back on now? For that, okay, sure. So I think we, we went through the background on it, and, and let's catch him up to speed to, to where we are today. So this last week, uh, Al Franken decided to uh, decide that he would not return the blue slip, and then Amy Klobuchar came out with her statement, uh, which I don't know how you'd characterize that. She's uh, she's not going to ap- approve of Strauss, but she's also not going to disapprove of Strauss. Uh, that's a classic Amy Klobuchar statement, if there ever was one. But give me the background on how this non-return of the blue slip by Senator Al Franken came about. Well, the two of them released what were clearly coordinated statements expressing their position on Justice Strauss after his nomination had been sitting for four months in this uh, kind of netherland created by the blue slip issue that you've been talking about. And uh, Franken, over the past four months, has been saying he's studying Justice Strauss's record. I, I didn't think that was exactly the case. You know, he's been out promoting his book, Giant of the Senate. He's had plenty of time. Justice Strauss was a law professor uh, who'd written the years and has been on the Minnesota Supreme Court for seven years. He doesn't have a huge record like many of the of the nominees who come before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, but uh, what, what I think what's been going on in the background, and that really has been entirely unreported, is that Amy Klobuchar has been negotiating with the White House for a hand in four existing federal vacancies in the state of Minnesota. Two federal district court judgeships are vacant in Minnesota. The judges here on the federal court need some help. Uh, they're, they're too short. And those are lifetime appointments. They're very important. Uh, President Trump has not uh, named anyone to those positions yet. Amy Klobuchar wants to have a hand in them. And by the same token, uh, the United States attorney for Minnesota, who served under President Obama, was relieved uh, this past January. Andy Luger, widely respected uh, but President Trump nominate his own U.S. attorney. Well, that hasn't happened. 
And that position, Amy Klobuchar really wants to have a hand in. And I reported power she it was reported first in the Star Tribune that she had named a panel of lawyers to recommend to her a United States attorney for Minnesota. That's extremely unusual because, you know, that's the power of the president to right. appoint a United States attorney. Uh, Senator Klobuchar wouldn't necessarily have anything to say about it. Um, but she did convene this panel that was reported uh two months ago on July 8th in the Star Tribune. I learned about a month ago that, that Senator Klobuchar recruited and was recommending a, uh, a Minneapolis attorney at the Fredrickson and Byron firm, uh, a partisan Democrat by the name of Joe Dixon, for that position. And I know him uh, well. He was one of the 121 lawyers on my case last year. So, <laughs> um, so this, this has been going on in the background, and, and I've, I've been writing about it on Powerline, I've been trying to get comments from Senator Klobuchar. She's declined to comment on any of the questions that I've uh, asked her about this whole thing. But but that's been going on in the back. Klobuchar has, in fact, been negotiating with the White House uh, about these four Minnesota vacancies. And she was blocking straws pending some agreement with the White House on the disposition of these four federal vacancies. And, and, and as I say, she had a special interest in the United States attorney. And in the meantime, Franken was holding his fire and I think Senator Klobuchar thought she'd be able to bring uh, Senator Franken along when she reached some agreement with the White House. Uh, and then on Tuesday, after the Labor Day weekend, uh, Senator and that seemed to me to be to be cued last week by this set of left-wing groups that came out echoing statements that Franken had made earlier uh, about the White House's failure to consult him. Uh, regarding this position on the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Um, and I'm not sure uh, what, what Klobuchar's relationship with Franken is on this at this point, but in any event, Franken uh, came out saying that it's kind of like a McCarthyite guilt by association thing, that, that Justice Strauss had clerked for Justice Thomas, that he thought highly of uh, Justice Scalia, and that that was somehow an ex- extreme right position that was unacceptable to Al Franken for the already conservative, which I don't think it is, uh, Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit that covers the seven states, including Minnesota. So then Klobuchar issued this statement that really is like a walking parody of a politician trying to please everybody and offend no one. Uh, it, it reminded me of the game Twister, where you win the game by being able to twist yourself into the, into the uh, weirdest positions. Um, she issued a three-paragraph statement that looked like it, it had been written by someone trying to look, make her look funny yeah. uh, by saying, you know, she supported Strauss, but she supported Franken's opposition to Strauss, and, and uh, uh, she wasn't going to blue-slip Strauss, but she supported Franken blue-slipping Strauss, and she hoped Grassley would respect that. And in the meantime, she hasn't returned to blue-slip, so we don't right. know where she is on it either. And as the matter stands right now, uh, it's really up to Senator Grassley to put it to the to these two about whether uh, what, uh, the, the Judiciary Committee should be blocked from the consideration of Justice Strauss's nomination for that position because of Franken's uh, failure to return the blue slip. Whether whether our clown senator will, will prevent the Senate from taking right. up this nomination.
Yeah, I think there's so many things to this that are interesting to me, and, and one of them you identified right there is the two statements and, and uh, from Senator Klobuchar and from Senator Franken, and they're, they're just classic insights into their personality, is that Senator Franken's looking at a judicial appointment and saying, because this guy clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas, he's too conservative for that position, which has nothing to do with the qualifications of a judge. And then Amy Klobuchar coming in behind that and saying everything and nothing all at the same time. I mean, I have a hard time. I've read her statement three or four times. I have a hard time even characterizing it because on one hand, she praises Justice Strauss and says he deserves a hearing. On the other hand, she says she loves getting to know him. She's enjoyed getting to know him. But now President Trump has to submit new names. Uh, So she's giving him the back of the hand while telling him he's an eminently qualified jurist to serve on the Eighth Circuit. Uh, the only thing you left out with respect to her is that she regrets that the appointment may go to a lawyer uh, from a state of which there are many in the Eighth Circuit with two Republican senators, i.e. Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Arkansas, or Nebraska. There's no shortage of states that would love to uh, have, an, have another uh, Eighth Circuit judge named. Right, so she's yeah. outsourced our judge to North Dakota or Iowa. That's a wonderful move, and she understands that. And this isn't going to block a conservative judge. It's just going to block a conservative judge from the state of Minnesota. Because I guarantee you, Jody Ernst will have no problem, and Charles Grassley will have no problem with a conservative jurist from Iowa. So when we come back, I want to get into a little bit of this four-for-one political deal, because that's the other part of this whole thing that gets me uh, kind of interested. And then I want to pick, pick your brain, if you will, about the uh, decision yesterday that came down by the Minnesota Supreme Court on Judge Dayton's defunding of our legislature and what that means and, and, and how I think Minneapolis and St. Paul Papers both got it completely wrong on what the judicial decision is and what it means and what's going to go forward. So we'll get to that back after the break. If you can hang on there, Scott, for another 15 minutes. Uh, this is Howard Root filling in for the J- Sue Jeffers on the Sue Jeffers Show on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Welcome back to the Sue Jeffers program. This is Howard Root, guest hosting for Sue today on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130. And uh, we're talking with Scott Johnson from Powerline about the uh, Justice David Strauss blue slip treatment uh, by our senators, Amy Klobuchar and Al Franken. And as we conclude that, Scott, there's there's two things I want to get into, I guess, is one is this backroom dealing, the four for one, and why the administration would even entertain giving up four appointments to Amy just to get Justice Strauss through the blue slip treatment. And then what do you see going forward? Because the blue slip doesn't block Justice Strauss's consideration. It's just a recommendation. And I think uh, Senator Charles Grassley from Iowa will have a determination of what to do going forward. But let's start with that backroom dealing you talked about on the four for one. How do you think the administration approached that? And why would they entertain that if, uh, if, if the blue slip isn't a complete block of their selection for the Eighth Circuit? Well, I think that the, the blue slip custom that Senator Grassley has honored would, in fact, prevent the Senate Judiciary Committee from uh, taking up Justice Strauss's nomination, and that it's entirely up to Senator Grassley right now about whether the nomination might proceed despite the withholding of the blue slip by Senator Franken. So um, something, something's going to have to give for, uh, I think, for it to proceed. I, I would say that, as I understand it, um, Senator Grassley is going to have to change the custom he's been following since he's been chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee for uh, for Justice Strauss to get a hearing. 
But you raised the question about why why the White House has been dealing with Senator Klobuchar with respect to these four vacancies. And in part, I think they, they recognize the power of the home state senators uh, to make life miserable for them with respect to those positions. But I think uh, more than anything, the White House really thinks highly of Justice Strauss and has been hugely invested in getting him on to the Federal Court of Appeals that includes Minnesota. And uh, he was one of the judges who was named as a possible Supreme Court appointment in the list that became a list of 21 when when President Trump was uh, campaigning in 2016. And they've had their eye on him uh, in the interim. And even though he was not selected to fill the Supreme Court vacancy that uh, Judge Gorsuch ultimately was, um, I think he still ranks high in the esteem of the White House for um, for the federal judiciary. And so they've been willing to talk to Amy. I think they thought they could work out a deal with Amy. And I, I have um, been trying to report what's going on. It's very difficult because Senator Klobuchar won't talk. Uh, the Star Tribune doesn't seem to want to ask her too much about what she's doing and, and what's happening and and. So I've been hearing from um, Republican sources and even heard indirectly from the White House Counsel's Office, which is which, in fact, is the one that helps with these judicial appointments. And about a month ago, I got a call indirectly from the White House Counsel's Office that asked me to quit writing about this and annoying Amy Klobuchar while they were trying to work out a deal with her. <laughs> because uh, it really bothered her to have people back home saying nasty things about her as I have been. Now that didn't stop you at all, did it, Scott? Well, it kind of whetted my appetite. <laughs> as it should. Now, I, the one thing I'd, I'd point you to, though, I think back in 2004, um, Orrin Hatch ran right, through right. the blue slip process with two right. judges for the Sixth Circuit in Michigan, where they did not get the blue slip return because they were Democratic senators, but they uh, appointed uh, Judge Griffin and Judge McKeague, both got on the Sixth Circuit. Couldn't they do the same thing again today? It would. It would require uh, Senator Grassley to vary the practice that he's been following. And as I say, it's up to him as chairman. I think in 2004, it was Hatch who was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And and, and, and as as I was trying to say, it really is in the hands of the chairman of of the Judiciary Committee, what weight he gives those blue slips. Senator Hatch, in that case, had had it with yeah. the blocking of those of those excellent nominees, and I think the same thing should happen here. But as it stands right now, something can have to change. Yeah, something has to change. It's not unprecedented to to go past the blue slip, not at all, and, and get right to it. And I don't understand why the administration would hesitate. I mean, you're not going to build. Maybe they don't understand Amy like you and I understand Amy. And we've seen this before with people first getting to know her a little bit and thinking you can work with her, and then having the football pulled off just while you're getting ready to kick it. Uh, I think yeah, that's... <laughs> it's really a prerogative of the senator, though. And and I don't think that the Trump White House has been outstanding in it. Uh, diplomacy with uh, the Republican senators, right. and I, I don't, I don't know what where they are with Senator Grassley, but they would need help from him, and I just haven't heard anything on that front. Okay, well, I'm sure you'll continue to keep us posted on Powerline with uh, great reporting on what's going on on this issue. Um, but I want to turn to the other issue that just dropped last uh, after yesterday afternoon, actually, where the Supreme Court came down with an order in the legislature versus. Mark Dayton lawsuit over the defunding of the legislature that Mark Dayton did at the very end. And 
Uh, I'm sure you've gone you've gone over this. You've you've written on this on Powerline as well. And and I you know woke up today and I saw the the headlines of the Minneapolis paper and the St. Paul paper says Minnesota Supreme Court says Dayton's veto was constitutional. Orders mediation, which seems like it's a done deal that Dayton won. Do you do you read it that way, or what's your read of the order that came down yesterday? I think it's, a, yeah, it's, it's only five pages long, and I'd encourage anybody who's interested to read it. I think it's a difficult uh, order to understand. It seems to seal a lot of different need to understand this was issued under the signature of the Chief Justice Lori Gildea, and I think she really exercised statesmanship to be able to issue a unanimous order supported by all the, ju- the six justices who heard it, four of whom are, in fact, Dayton appointees. And you were at oral argument. You know that right. that, that oral argument was really dominated by, by Justice Lillehaut, who seemed to be in the governor's corner on this issue. And the opinion, I think, gives both sides something to crow about. It gives both sides something... I wouldn't say that Dayton won, but you can't. I don't think you can say that he lost either. And uh, what I get out of that of that order more than anything else is that the court does not want to have to deal with this case. Well, that's clear. You know, one hundred percent clear. And you know, I was at the oral argument, and uh, Chief Justice Goldea, uh, you know, she was attacking Sam Hansen, who was the the governor's lawyer, uh, just right from the outset, and then. David Littlehog came out and went after the legislature's lawyer. So I saw that as a kind of a 4-2 decision, kind of right. supporting the legislature. I think you were opposite. You were very negative on the legislative ch- choices. And I think in this case, we were both wrong because this is a punt. I mean, this is basically, I don't want to decide this. Go to mediation, and we'll give you something to argue about on either side. But right. clearly, the, the, the one thing that the report, the newspaper reports had that was that this was a victory for Dayton. That's clearly not the case. What they're quoting is, the language before the but in the sentence, they said this is constitutional, but our analysis doesn't stop there. Now we have to look at whether it's a constitutional power that is being used to accomplish an unconstitutional result. And that's exactly what the argument was in front of the court. So um, how do you think this mediation goes? I mean, this is uncharted territory, isn't it, for us on ordering mediation this way? It's it's difficult to predict because because of the the underlying politics with with the the Republican legislature that's running this includes a, a, probable, a probable candidate or two for governor. They're not going to want to want to concede any ground to Governor Dayton, and uh, I think that makes it really difficult to resolve by mediation. When you ask who won, I, I you know the the issue that the Supreme Court left open was whether it had the power to order any funding beyond what might be absolutely necessary to keep the legislature running in some sense. And I, which is where it would have been if, if the governor's veto had been held unconstitutional, right. uh, uh, it would have gone back for, you know, for, for funding until they worked things out. I don't know. I don't know that that order changes anything, except it leaves open the question of the court's power to appropriate funds, which is allocated to the legislature under the Constitution. Well, there's certainly going to be another order coming down, another hearing, and probably the court's going to have to determine the mediation. So we're going to leave it there. And uh, thank you, Scott, for calling in. And uh, we will be back after the break on KTALK AM 1130.